I am the future. I'm a thinker. I'm funny too. I like to play too much. I'm I love messing with people. I'm not dumb. I mean, I'm happy. I'm friendly. I like to sleep. I got a mouth and I talk I talk back. I'm smart when I want to be. Welcome to the February episode of the RC Podcast. I'm Robbie Griswold, and today we are learning all about the Residential College's Telling It program. Telling It is a trauma-informed, resilience-building, after-school program that supports the healing and learning needs of school-age youth. We'll get into what all that means shortly. The program is held at four sites in Washtenaw County, two in Ann Arbor, and two in Ypsilanti, just east of us, and each site is situated in low-income communities. Six telling groups meet every week, totaling anywhere from 60 to 75 youth from elementary to high school age, and are facilitated by a team of telling its staff, U of M student interns, and community members. Telling It integrates the best practices from social work and education that are filtered through the expressive arts, such as theater, games, and poetry, as demonstrated by one of our youth participants a moment ago. Let's dive in and start with how Telling It was created. My name is Deb Gordon Gerfinkel, and I'm the founding director of Telling It, and I'm also a lecturer at the Residential College at the University of Michigan. So in the dim and distant past, around 2001, 2002, I thought of using some skills that I'd honed while I'd lived in San Francisco Bay Area and based on my background in London where I trained to be a drama and education specialist, which meant I could apply the theater arts across all curricula in a school setting. And I wanted to support children uh, who were living in homeless shelters, staying in homeless shelters, with their literacy struggles. So I was thinking that I would use the arts, theater arts, visual arts, uh, creative writing to support them. And I approached SOS Community Services. That time, Faye Askew-King was this wonderful head of the social workers. And she said, yeah, you can you can pilot this idea, which is using the arts to support the literacy uh, deficits of, of youngsters staying in homeless shelters. And we'll support you in that. And you can can work out how to do this locally. And so over the years, the program built, we served SOS children and middle schoolers and also Ozone House teenagers at the uh, drop-in site over there on Pearl Street in Ypsilanti. So for many years, those were our two uh, partnering organizations. And then we started working also with Avalon Housing, which is local. That's a supportive housing for formerly homeless families. What was happening was that the children and the teens that were participating in the program were enjoying what we did. However, they weren't responding to the program as if it was really designed to support their literacy deficits. They were sharing stories with us in a way that even their social workers and counselors said they hadn't heard some of the stories. It was really clear that we, we were a trauma-informed program without being trauma-informed yet. It was all happening. The trauma was coming in every day. The stories were being shared. Sometimes in the middle of a, of a game, a little kid would suddenly share something that would blow us all away, and then we needed to you know, be prepared for that and not to have big reactions, and we needed to train everybody. And it was very, very clear that the pedagogy of the program had to meet the needs of the kids. 
This trauma-informed element became a key organizing principle for telling it. The program shifted from literacy to a broader mission of resilience and self-determination, both of which were necessary to begin to address any learning deficits. And we had to be completely on board on what it means to be trauma-informed. And so I dived into learning about that, which I'm still doing, about how the arts, and in our case, the applied arts, meaning the arts that can be applied in many different contexts. Um, it's not that you can't be a purist about visual art or photography or hip hop or theater or any of those things. You can be a purist about any of those things. But when you apply it, you have to take in consideration what you're doing, why you're doing it, who you're doing it with. We're always in partnership and collaboration. We're never helping. We're never saving. And we're never serving as role models. We're always in partnership. We're always collaborating. And the experts in the room are always the children and the youth that we're serving and the, and the community partners. Um, and so it's been a journey. The journey included bringing in best practices from social work and education. Here's one of the Telling It student interns to tell you about what a session at site might entail. Hi, my name is Mina Weibrecht. I'm a fifth year at the University of Michigan, and my major is creative writing and literature, and I'm also pre-med, and I'm applying to med schools this cycle. Um, so before our sessions, all the staff members would sit in a circle and talk about kind of the plans for the day and also the needs that um, each um, individual in the program may have. With everybody in telling it, the first thing we do when we gather is eat. It's a very important because the program uh, in its current iteration is purely after school and everybody has to eat. And for they don't always get to eat that evening. And so whatever they eat at school or with us is what they get to eat. So we try really hard to make sure that what we offer the youngsters is uh, nutrition, nutritious and also fun for them to eat. So they'll want to eat it. So that's always the first thing. And depending on the site, some of them with the little guys, their bodies just are itching to move. And so we get those wiggles out. We play some what we call big body games. And the big body games are very intentional because a child is often dislocated from their body and their body is numbed. And so um, the big body games serve multiple purposes. They break the ice. They get the wiggles out. They have us all running around and screaming. They have the adults on the team making mistakes and um, trying to work out together in collaboration with the kids how to do the game. They get to see all the adults make total fools of themselves. There's a lot of laughing, which is really important. Laughing and screaming is really important for a kid who's experienced trauma. Sometimes there's one youth that wasn't particularly welcomed by the rest of the, the people in the group because of gender, age, things like that. And so when we played games and we had teams, then all of a sudden they became really good friends with that one person they didn't necessarily like. And um, so that was a really great way of breaking down barriers and have everyone run around, scream, and just have so much fun and just forget all the prejudices they had or kind of hesitations about uh, they had about a certain person. And then we kind of get into our meat and potatoes, and that can look like many different things. It can be it can be role play mixed with visual art, mixed with what we call a throwdown, which is when we embed a literacy opportunity in what we're doing so the kids aren't, it's not like compartmentalized. Now we're going to go write an essay. It's always part of the excitement. It's, it's, it's a response to or it's embedded in or it's part of the beginning of something around a story or around imaginative play. 
um, particularly with the younger kids, the more you can embed things, the better it is. You can play these games. We make up a lot of games and the games can suddenly become enormously serious, but nobody involved is seeing it that way. We have a, a game called Rocket Ship, which is so much fun. The kids love it. We're screaming, we're running. The team members take it in turns to be aliens as we crash land on all these planets. And then we start thinking about, well, how do we know if somebody's a, a safe person or if they're a dangerous person? So we go from being on our rocket ship and all our planets to thinking about uh, stranger danger. But we do it within the storyline. We're not really saying, you know, if this man comes up to you in the street, we're, we're all having fun and playing and everybody's smiling and having a good time. And then we might do a story about if you had your own planet, what would, what would it look like? What would it smell like? What would it taste like? There was this game where we all picked an animal. And it was a scenario where we were all in a hot air balloon and there could only be one survivor. So three of the animals would sit in a chair and we would have to make a really convincing case for why we should be the surviving animal. So that game um, talked a lot about death and grief, and because there's only one survivor, um, you're voting for other animals to die. So it was actually a pretty intense conversation about grief and death, and but it was a very safe space to talk about those things. And those are pretty taboo subjects, especially for people who are younger and a lot of people assume that oh younger people don't really have any experiences with death or grief but that's actually not true you know we get off to some big body games and we do it with the teens too and you see be surprised even with those cool I'm too you know cool for my shirt kind of teenagers they love the games they absolutely love the games I live in anger and frustration to get through the day. I live with stress and depression because I don't always express myself. But I got to be successful. To make my mama proud and have my dad, my daddy look down and, and smile. This is, how, this is how I feel. I'm brave when I'm scared. My mind, because I think I'm scared when I'm brave. My heart, that's the best feeling. I'm pissed when people are being irritating. My fist, because I knock them out. I respect my mom, physical, myself. I'm the future. With the little guys, they will share their story or their poem, depending, and maybe draw pictures and title them if their literacy is, is, is struggling. And nobody has to write, physically write their own story. Uh, they can tell the story as long as they have total authorship of it, and their big buddy will scribe it. Um, and that is one of the very important first steps in literacy is actually ownership and pride. And we find that a lot of kids who are struggling with their literacy and teenagers as well have started to turn around that literacy ship because they start to feel so proud. And there's no stigma about who actually physically puts the pen on the paper. And that starts to change as they get more and more comfortable. With the big guys, it's a bit different. We still do the games. But we get into some serious stuff. And with our, our, we have a big group of teenagers that come twice a week to meet with us and are f amazing because even though I'm talking about the program, the actual program sites are run by people who are trained by me and a partnering social worker and a team that's trained. And the site leaders are all from the community. And they know the kids. They know the community. And they have a background 
in the arts in being trauma-informed. And they're the really on the front line doing the real work. Um, and they're amazing people, each and every one of them. Uh, and with the teenagers, we have a young man called Brandon Lewis, who's been doing an incredible job of engaging teens who are really hard to engage. For years, we've been working with them at Parkridge Community Center, and they've really, really, it's really been hard to have a core group. And now we have way too many kids coming, and we honor all and each of them. And they feel comfortable, they're sharing deeply, they're engaging in many different activities. We bring in guest artists, hip-hop artists, muralists, um, spoken word. Uh, we bring in some theater games. Um, we don't have any censorship and we have no judgment. So there's no blocking of any subject matter and that's with all our youth with the little kids developmentally it's not appropriate for them to swear so that's one thing we redirect and sometimes the sw excessive swearing for a young for a young person means that they're in a, an environment and so we pay attention to that at home maybe or in other situations that's often a sign something's going on that we might want to pay attention to with the older kids everything's off the table everybody or on the table whatever everybody can swear every, as long as there's no hate language that's the one thing we ask for people to leave outside and that we do check is hate language and we say and we don't just check it we say can you find another word to say so if somebody says that's so gay can you find what is it you mean to say what does that mean to you right now okay can you say that instead of that's so gay because there might be people in the room who are gay and that would feel offensive to them uh, so we don't make a big deal out of it. And when the groups are really safe, that intimacy and that trust and that safety has been established, which takes a little time, we can often bring in those words and look at them critically and start looking at if you're going to use that word, then you need to own it. If you're going to say those words, you need to own them and have at least some idea about where they come from and why some people struggle. So with the teens, it's more complex, but, but often very adult themes start to come up through, through, the, uh, through the ways that we engage. Unfortunately, there has been a degree of gang activity and definitely high incidences of violence in the community. Um, the teenagers um, in, in recent research uh, completed suicides, opioid addiction, heroin addiction, early pregnancies, very high rates of uh, STDs. There's a lot of issues within the community, although the community is really very strong. And I go to a meeting every Monday morning at Parkridge Community Center where all the different organizations and community members gather and talk. And there's an amazing degree of strength and there's a, there's a lot of resources for people living in the community. However, a lot of the youngsters we have coming into the program are carrying quite a lot of trauma in their bodies that's affecting the, the healthy development of their brains, uh, particularly the way that the right and the left side of their brains intersect and their impulse control. So we do a lot of work to support them in all of our community settings um, with those issues. Some of them may have a family member that's incarcerated. Some of them might be doing really, really well and come from loving, stable homes. However, their communities or their schools are, are, are where violence might occur and they might feel vulnerable. One of the major things I learned was to not have big re reactions to comments from the youth that may be alarming or kind of off-putting because big reactions actually discourage people from sharing more information. They may 
feel like, oh, um, there may be negative consequences from me saying this or just sharing about what's happening at home. And so what I've learned is to just acknowledge what is said but not react in a way that such as, oh my goodness, that was awful. Why would you say that? Or that's a huge thing. Oh my goodness, I can't believe you just let that happen. Um, if I were to respond in those ways, it could be placing blame on the individual or it just may shut down the individual. So just acknowledging and not um, overreacting or um, kind of act reacting in a way that I may be instinct, like maybe instinctual, um, actually encourage a more a safer space for people to share about what's happening on a daily basis. Students who enroll in R.C. Hume's 341 become Telling It interns and engage in a learning experience that bridges theory and practice. The course is called Empowering Community Through the Arts, and it has evolved from how it was started by Kate Mendeloff many years ago when she invited me to participate, and then slowly evolved to me being the sole teacher. The course itself is designed to look at how we identify ourselves before we go into a community with which we don't share membership. It looks very deeply at the way race, ethnicity, gender, um, sexuality, all these things play into when we go out in a community-engaged, engaged learning setting. We look at the history of communities and how communities struggle, and then what place does the arts have Here's John Wells, the current director of the RC. One of the great things for our students is uh, perhaps they came from one of the wealthier sub- suburbs of Detroit or perhaps New York City or Los Angeles. And, you know, of course, they're quite familiar with uh, issues of poverty and lack of resources and uh, lack of a tax base to support uh, excellent public schools. Um, but it's one thing to know about it, and it's another thing to be able to interact with students who are in those schools. So I think our students uh, in the RC benefit tremendously, not just uh, from the community outreach aspect of telling it, but from the academic perspective as well. We spend a lot of time building skills around the applied arts, but equally as much time digging in and, and talking deeply about very sensitive topics, including current politics and the the state of education, which is really the front line of social justice right now in in our multicultural classrooms. And I invite scholars from different parts of the university, for example, Professor Simona Golden over at the the School of Education, who's on the front line of multicultural education, to come in and share with my students about the way young people are tracked in schools and how disparate the Ypsilanti children's education is compared to many of the children in Ann Arbor. So we we really do tackle a lot of subjects as well as the kind of the toolkit of going into community and supporting young people who may have experienced trauma. And I also find that quite a lot of my students have experience around this and they will, once they feel safe, explore that through the classroom, which is why the classroom has to be a very safe space in the way that our telling it sites are. The fall of 2019, I'm collaborating with Ashley Lucas, who's the director of PCAP, 
on a course that has been requested by my students, which is an advanced practice. So they want to deepen and elevate their experiences beyond the multiple introductory aspects of what I teach, where I introduce them to theater of the oppressed. I introduce them to a lot of different ideas and a lot of different pedagogies and skills, but we don't go deep, deep into any of them. And this is a class that some students have asked me to, to teach where we do go much, much deeper into some of the elements that I introduce them to and also expect more of them at their internships, either in prisons or in telling it community-based sites, as a way to, at the end of it, be ready to actually work in this, this field. About two years ago, I felt the need to actually codify everything that we had collaborated on in telling it, the staff, the youth, the students from University of Michigan, all the amazing community members, and actually codify where we were with the pedagogy of telling it. And so thanks to a grant from the Maltz Foundation, and I took a little bit of leave of absence from the residential college for one semester, I wrote the Telling It Toolkit which is now, it's self-published, and I give that to my staff. Students can refer to it for all kinds of resources, and it's really the how-to, the rationales, lots of examples of lesson plans, session plans, uh, the thinking behind the psychology, the, the research that goes with it. We also have a very rigorous evaluation component to the program, and so we evaluate everything we're doing all the time. And I have a student that started with us as a freshman and now she's a master's student and she continues with us so that we're always looking and evaluating what we do. And writing the toolkit was enormously helpful because it did start to help me codify and continue the research and why we do what we do and why is it proven effective. Please see the Telling It website, lsa.umich.edu backslash tellingit to learn more about the statistics that prove that the program is effective. Here's Telling It partner, Washtenaw County's Sheriff, Jerry Clayton, giving his assessment at a luncheon for Telling It supporters. As an overall community, uh, we need to balance, right? We need to know that we need to have strategies to address the, the traditional way that we address uh, challenges in our community. From an enforcement standpoint, from a social services standpoint, all those things are important. But I think we only realize our fullest potential as a, as a community when we think proactive and strategically, when we focus on root causes, when we understand that the only way we can break the cycle that continues to, to hold not just the most vulnerable community, our people in the community, but our entire community, when, once we realize that we must invest in traditional reactive, but we must be proactive. We must invest in the fundamental uh, strategies that address the challenges throughout all of our community. We'll focus on Washington County, but we're talking about everywhere. And Telling It is one of those fundamental programs. What I appreciate about Telling It is this. It's proactive, so we're reaching out to some of our young folks before certain things happen and they end up in a system where they have to deal with, um, with my, pro my profession. Uh, and, and equally as important, it meets our young folks where they are. And I think that's critically important not just from a geographical standpoint, they take the services to the different parts of the community in Washtenaw County, but what I think is more important is they meet our young folks where they are emotionally and spiritually. They don't force them to engage right away. They build trust with our young folks. And by building trust, it creates the environment where they're willing to share parts of themselves with others. And I think that sharing is therapeutic. 
And I think that sharing allows them to reflect on their current experiences, but more importantly, what their future holds. I'll leave you with this. I, in my 30 years, I've looked into the eyes of some young folks that did not have hope. And that's scary on a number of propositions. That's scary for them, but it's also scary for our larger community. Our future is predicated on our young folks having hope and seeing where, where they fit in the larger architecture of not only Washington County, but in the United States. We will realize our fullest potential in Washington County when we continue to invest in our young folks. When we build them up, we give them hope, when we engage them in a way where they trust us and they're willing to share with us, build upon themselves, and then go out and be contributing members in the community. I'm brave when I speak my mind. I'm pissed when people talk shit. I'll respect when respected. I'll fight when people try me. I'll back down when I want to. I love when loved. I feel most powerful when encouraged. I'm excited to see cute people. I'm embarrassed when my info is out there. We're thrilled that Telling It has been selected as one of six nonprofit beneficiaries of the University of Michigan Athletics Big House 5K presented by Toyota that will weave through campus and end at the 50-yard line at Michigan Stadium. The race is on April 7th. Once registration reaches capacity, we encourage you to support Telling It by making a donation on the registration site, mgoblue.com backslash bighouse5, as in the number, 5K, so that's backslash bighouse5K, or by volunteering on Telling It's behalf. We are doubly thrilled to report that on that same day, the U of M Student Athlete Advisory Council will present Mock Rock, a fundraiser that began in 1999. Telling it has been chosen to be the beneficiary of this event this year, in which U of M athletics teams put on skits, songs, and other merriment for an audience and panel of judges. Mock Rock will also be held on April 7th. It will be at Cliff Keen Arena at 4.30 p.m., and tickets will be available soon on mgoblue.com. We are honored and excited to partner with U of M Athletics and the U of M Student Athlete Advisory Council on these events. Thank you for listening to the RC Podcast. I co-produced this episode with RC first-year student and East Quad Hall Council President Zan Hamid. The music you hear is from artist Audiobinger. We haven't revealed the names of the youth poets on this episode to protect their privacy. Subscribe to our podcast on outlets like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your preferred app. This podcast is a production of the Residential College, a four-year interdisciplinary liberal arts program at the University of Michigan College of Literature, Science, and the Arts, founded 1967 in Ann Arbor. This is Robbie Griswold, signing off. 